Our pilgrim has yet more to say to the three damned souls on the sand who are wheeling round and round and round in each other's footsteps. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow and with the 16th Canto of Inferno, very slowly walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We've been in the 16th Canto for a bit. We're going to still stay here for a bit more. We're at lines 64 through 78. I would encourage you to go back if you're dropping in right here to catch what's happened in the 16th Canto, if not to go all the way back to the beginning and start walking with Dante from the top so that mm, things make a little sense. But here we are at the 64th to 78th lines of 16th Canto of Inferno. So that your spirit may long guide the parts of your body, that one then replied, and so that your fame may still give light after you're gone. Let us know if valor and courtesy still make a habitation in our city as they once did or if they have completely left everything behind, because Guglielmo Bossiere has only grieved with us and gone along with our company for a short while now, but he stabs us well and enough with his words. The new people, with all their quick riches, have engendered such arrogance and dissipation in you, Florence, such that you already weep over it. I cried out like this with my face uplifted, and those three who understood this as my answer looked at each other the way men do who come upon the truth. We have come to the great change in our pilgrim, Dante. We have come to the change that will set the narrative for, oh, I would say the rest of the cantos. So what is that, the next 83 cantos? We have come to the change that will mark the story that is going to be told, the fundamental motivational difference in comedy. And it is happening here amongst three of the, well, sodomites, but you know that might be controversial, three of the sodomites on the burning sands of the seventh circle of hell. Here, Dante has found three of his history heroes, his Gelf heroes, and Florence's Gelf heroes. They have talked to him about fame and being remembered for their deeds. He has responded back that he is one of them, but with great sadness at their misery. And now they and he are about to do their next exchange. So this has two parts to it, this short passage. So let's take them one at a time. First, Rustacucci's answer, and then Dante's unbelievable shift in character. So Rustacucci, the one who's been speaking for the threesome all along, says, so that your spirit may long guide the parts of your body, the members in the Florentine, and so that your fame may still give light after you're gone, let us know if valor and courtesy still make a habitation in our city, as they once did, or if they've completely left everything behind. Okay, I want to say two things about this. First of all, notice the first thing he says, may your spirit long guide 
your members, the parts of your body. What does this mean? Well, yes, it's a very florid and beautiful way to say, may you live a long time. (laughs) May your spirit stay in your body a long time and guide the pieces of your body. And remember, there is this kind of homunculus notion of the spirit that it is inside the body controlling the physical body itself. That's all true. However, and this is true that it's a wish for a long life. However, there's something else here, and that is there's a kind of wish for unity. And this is going to become important, not in this episode of the podcast and this passage from Canto 16, but in the next one. There is a wish here for unity of spirit and body as one. And just keep that in your head, that that's how Rustakuchi starts off in this passage in his reply to the pilgrims saying, I'm one of your countrymen. I'm from your terroir, I believe is the way I said it last time. I'm one of your countrymen. And he wishes that Dante, the pilgrim, may be a unified something, spirit and body in cohesion, spirit guiding body. And then he says, so that your fame may give light after you're gone. And notice, fame. It is still Rustacucci's focus. It is still the focus of the canto. It's still the focus bending over from Canto 15 and Brunetto Latini. No matter what else happens, these guys want to be remembered, and they want to be more than remembered. They want to be famous. Now, I don't mean famous like Madonna or, I don't know, like Stephen Eady. Not famous is. <laughs> Wow, why'd they bring up a Las Vegas lounge act? Like like some famous Hollywood or Las Vegas type. But what they mean is that their deeds last beyond them so that they are remembered. And yet it does have a little bit of that modern notion of fame behind it. Not so much glitz and glamour, but just that people, when I say the name, you bang know who they are. Like when I say Madonna, or if you're a certain age like me, like when I say Stephen Eady, bang, you know who I'm talking about. It's that. It's recognition beyond your own lifespan. So their focus has been there all along, and it remains there, and they want to know still about valor and courtesy. I already made a big deal about courtesy, but let's make a big deal again about it. Courtesy in valor, these are the medieval civic virtues. You will notice first that these are not religious virtues, not holiness, chastity, purity. These are not traditionally religious Christian virtues. These are civic virtues, and they are the big ones for the Middle Ages. Valor, which has a lot to do with keeping your word, which has a lot to do with loyalty, which has a lot to do with courage and courtesy, which is knowing your place. And it can be knowing your good place, your up place, your high chair, your throne. Courtesy can is knowing where you fit in the pecking order and acting appropriately and morally from that position. So these two virtues, as it were, are the great civic virtues of the Middle Ages, but they do get a religious coding. And you should know that valor and courtesy do have a kind of Christian coding in the Middle Ages in the way that today civic virtues often get 
Christian coatings. Uh, if you think of the, about the United States right now, there are certain forms of patriotism that have a very distinctly Christian coating on them. And yet these things bind up together and roll forward together. And really, honestly, one doesn't have a great deal to do with the other. Perhaps I'm playing my political cards too much, but one doesn't have a great deal to do with each other. But culturally, they start to get bound up and the religious coding starts to come on these civic virtues. But these are still the great civic virtues. We are constantly being told in this canto that the, that the discussion here is about civic life, that it is about civil society, and most importantly, as we're going to say, it's failure, which leads us to the grand point. These noble Guelphs seem to do what they did for fame to be remembered. Their heroic civic acts of holding Florence together, whether warding off war or peace treaties or whatever it would be, as noble as it is, it seems as if their motivation is fame, to be remembered beyond their own death. And I ask you, is that a proper motivation? This will become an increasingly important question all the way up to Paradiso. Is being remembered a proper motivation for doing good on earth? And you know it's going to come down to a different answer for Dante. But let me just stop and say what that has to do with <laughs> ethics and being remembered. If you're doing what you're doing, the good you're doing, in order to be remembered, you have an ulterior motive. Therefore, your ethics are, to use the fancy word, teleological, focused on the teleos, Greek the end, the finish, the end of everything. You have a teleological ethic. So you're looking out toward beyond your death and you're trying to make sure your name is remembered. That is different than a deontological ethic from the Greek word deon, meaning duty. That is that you do good simply because good is to be done. You don't do it for any reward beyond itself, but for its own own motivation. And I have to tell you that up until Dante, up until the late Middle Ages, Christian ethics are largely teleological. That is, you do things so that at the end of time, they pay off. There's an end reward down the road somewhere. At Dante's time, and in the Renaissance, and in the late Middle Ages, and now into the modern world, ethics start to change. And we start to have this notion that doing good is its own reward. That is, you do good simply because it is good. You don't do it to be remembered. You don't do it to get a final reward somewhere. You do it because it's what is to be done. And Dante stands on this early edge of a deontological ethic. That is an ethic in which good is good because it's good and you do good because it's good, not because you hope for anything in the future. But you'll notice that these guys are completely, to use our fancy word, teleological. They're still wanting to be remembered. And of course, they're saying, well, listen, because here's a new guy, our 
Guglielmo Bossieri. He's come down amongst us. He's only been with us a little while in our company, grieving with us, and he's told us things that stab us with his words. Let's let's stop just a second and say something about this Bossieri fellow. First of all, his last name means purse maker, but ironically, this is somebody who is almost lost to history. I don't think this irony is one Dante intends. I don't think he picks this figure as they talk about fame in order to pick somebody who is lost to history because Dante wouldn't know that Borsieri is going to be lost from history ultimately. I wish that irony were in the text and uh, listen, I danced around this a million times thinking can I possibly make it that while these guys are focused on fame, they bring up somebody who's a kind of minor figure who's never going to be remembered and wow look at the irony that's going on in the passage and I like it and I wish it were there I just don't think it's there I think this is probably some noble Florentine who has recently died and who has joined them but now this far out from comedy we have very little access to who this is. Boccaccio claims that this Guglielmo, the purse maker, is someone who well, was just known for his courteous manners. Someone who is no, was known and famous for being so courteous. But this seems like another of the stories that Boccaccio makes up to swirl around comedy. Again, maybe that's so. Maybe Boccaccio is right, but I don't know. It seems like Boccaccio is just a major league storyteller, and that's what's going on here. But what we can see in this passage is that the damned are very concerned about news from up top. Here comes Borsieri down. He's recently dead. He's telling them all about the troubles in Florence. They're wanting to know more from Dante. They're asking our pilgrim, you know, do valor and courtesy still make a habitation in our city? I mean, the damned really want to know about Earth. And, well, this is far too far in the future, but as you will come to see, the blessed couldn't care less about what's going on on Earth. And that is one of the major differences. The damned, first of all, only want to talk about themselves. And secondly, they want to know what's going on up there. You know, do people still remember me? Is valor and courtesy still around in Florence? What's happening up top? What's the scene like? Are the Ghibellines still being defeated? Are the Gelfs still in power? What's going on up there? The blessed, they could care less. They have no interest in any news from Earth. But right now, we can't see the blessed. We can just see the damned and see their unbelievable desire to know if they're remembered and how things are going up top, which brings us to the pilgrim. They've asked their question. Uh, let us know. Does Valerian Courtesy still live? And the pilgrim busts out with these words. The new people and all their quick riches have engendered such arrogance and dissipation in you, Florence, that you already weep over it. This is a major change. What he does is he stands there with his face uplifted, spitting out what can only be called a prophetic announcement. In fact, the journey ahead is how our pilgrim becomes a poet and how that poet becomes a prophet. 
this is the beginning. This is an oracular prophetic statement. Now, I know that you might think prophet. Mm, what is that? A future teller? No, no, not in the Judeo-Christian tradition. A prophet may tell the future ultimately, but what a prophet is, is a mouthpiece of God and a truth teller and somebody who speaks the truth and points out the ills of the world in order to correct them. That is the root of a prophet. There may be some future telling involved in that, but it's not the root of what prophets are in the Judeo-Christian tradition. They are truth tellers. They are mouthpieces of God. This prophetic pronouncement, this oracular statement about Florence and people and their quick riches have engendered arrogance and dissipation that Florence is already in trouble. This is a direct slap back at Brunetto Latini. What was Latini's focus? Latini's focus was those deplorable Fiasolans that had come down from the hills long ago, bred with the Romans, ruined everything. Remember that whole history lesson? That is not what this says. This doesn't say, you know, the problem with Florence is what Brunetto said. It's about the olden times, back in the olden days when those Fiasolans came down. Nope, not true. New people quick riches, <laughs> the nouveau riche. It's the nouveau riche who have settled in Florence and upped its prosperity and they have engendered arrogance and dissipation such that Florence weeps over it. This stands in direct contrast to Brunetto Latini's entire history lesson that came before. In other words, this is the moment in which the poet begins to become a prophet and the pilgrim begins to become a prophet. And how do they do that? By rejecting the explanation for the troubles in Florence given by Brunetto Latini. It doesn't have anything to do with country people coming down and breeding with noble Romans and ruining the stock. No, it has to do with a whole new class of people who got rich quick, who don't seem to care about anything except their own riches, and they have engendered bread. They have, remember, <laughs> what was Brunetto's focus? It was on the seed of the Romans. And here we have engendering. We're echoing back. They have engendered arrogance and dissipation. And our pilgrim says it with his face lifted up like a prophet. Where does it come from? A, it comes from a rejection of Latini. B, it comes from saying, I am one of your countrymen. See the last episode of this podcast. It comes from the sadness engendered by the problems in Florence. It comes from all this and out of this arises the voice of, I don't know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, um, John of the Apocalypse. Out of this arises this voice of the prophet detailing the ills of Florence such that the three standing there are struck with it as the truth. Let me see one more thing about this little passage, and it's just a commentary problem. In the commentary, there is a lot said about the face uplifted. Basically, the question is, is the pilgrim looking up toward heaven, or is the pilgrim looking up toward Florence? After all, the pilgrim is down in the cave of hell, so to look up would be to look up at Florence on the surface of the earth. And commentators get 
oh, wow, bound up in this question. Is the poet looking at heaven or is the poet looking at Florence? And I always want to say, well, can it be both? I mean, can't the pilgrim be looking up and Florence is there and heaven is above Florence? Can't his eyes and face be directed at both at once? It seems to me they can. And in fact, it seems to me important that they are because that seems to be able to unify the prophetic stance. That is, there's a line from my eyes through Florence to heaven that allows me to quickly assess its problems. And what are its problems? basically the nouveau riche. Basically, the city has become incredibly prosperous and has forgotten its place, thus courtesy, and has become arrogant and dissipated because it doesn't understand its historical place, it doesn't understand its cultural place, or its religious place. All of that seems to be there in this first oracular, prophetic, out of Delphi, <laughs> pronouncement from the pilgrim that just leaps off the page out of the blue and begins the great narrative of comedy. How an ordinary guy becomes an extraordinary poet who becomes an extraordinary prophet. But we're going to have to take lots more steps down this road before we get there. So subscribe to the podcast, Walking with Dante. Give it a rating. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work here. Do a bit of work and give it a rating maybe even drop a comment that would be fabulous you can connect with me on twitter under the hashtag walking with dante if you use that hashtag i'll follow you right back and we can talk about this episode or any other episodes you want to talk about in this long walk across comedy otherwise come back because there's yet more to be said by these three circling each other oiled and naked on the sands in front of our pilgrim now kind of burgeoning prophet up on the embankment with his guide Virgil on the next episode of Walking with Dante.